0: Awesome, awesome. Hey, well, uh, welcome everybody to Blackhawk Church. My name is Matt, and uh, I'm one of the pastors on staff. I'm the senior pastor here, part of the teaching team, and it's so good to have a chance to uh, be with everybody here live in the room, here at all sites and venues online. All right, so to start off, I've got a question that I wanna mention. I'd just like to bring up with all of us. So this is an all skate deal, regardless of where you're watching this right now or taking this in, this is all of us together. How many of you... Uh, either at some point in your life or let's be honest right now, were or are into video games in some way. You had a gaming system at home. You kind of dug playing that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, that's a decent amount of room. Um, so, okay, I've got here something that I wanna share. This is, this is so fun. So um, back when, uh, when I was growing up, um, like in elementary school, I remember for Christmas uh, I don't know, somewhere like late 70s, early 80s, um, we got our first uh, video game system as a family. And the one that we got was the Atari 2600. That is to, come on, let's hear it now. All of us, that's right. That's right, all of us with hair my color are, are clapping right now, that's great. It totally dates me. But look at how awesome that thing is. An on-off switch and then like three other buttons and that's all that you needed. And then like there was this controller that came with it. Do any of you, you remember this controller right now? It's got just the joystick and one button and that's all that you needed, you know? And it, you could do everything just with this. And we were playing games like, uh, like Pac-Man and Donkey Kong, and Frogger, and Asteroids—you know, things like that. Ah, oh, it was just the best. Okay, so we started with this, but then a few years later, you know, things started to upgrade, and we moved to the um, the Nintendo system. And the Nintendo system—any hey, of you remember this guy right here? So, and it had like it had like the little toggle thing here, and an A and a B, you know. So a few more buttons started to get a little more intense, and then from there. I remember we got the, the, the Super Nintendo, and, um, and so it had, like, the front buttons and, you know, I mean, more stuff that was going on with the controller. Anybody, you remember this one right here? And then that was really kind of the end of my, you know, I, my video gaming went on hiatus for a while, but I remember going to Florida, hanging out with my cousins, and they had the, uh, they had the Nintendo GameCube Anybody Nintendo GameCube people at all? And then not too long after that became the, uh, the Sony PlayStation world. Any PlayStation people in the room right now? Yeah, that's good. You're not making much noise, so that's not impressive. But uh, thanks for raising your hands. But uh, yeah, so PS2 here, you know, and they've moved along a lot since then. And then came the world of like the Xbox, Xbox 360, all of those things. I entered back into the video gaming world once my daughters got to the age where they wanted to get into it and their friends started to get the, um, the Nintendo Wii. You remember when the Wii came into the world, and all of a sudden, like you were you were like you were playing tennis or ping pong or like boxing with these things. I can remember my, my daughters even got a game called Cooking Mama, where like you're like you're like mixing things and making stuff, and like it was goofy. But uh, anyway, that that was their world, and then got into you know Xbox 360, you know with everything that way, and um and now today you know I'll go over to friends' houses, and their kids will have. The Nintendo Switch. And uh and the Nintendo Switch, where like you can pop these things off, pop it into a deal, and then you're watching it on screen, or you can just take the game with you. It's fantastic. And then you've got the whole the whole VR world, you know, and I got to use this, you know, on stage not too long ago, where you enter the game and you're just completely in it. You know what I mean? And so, so you see, uh, this is so fun up here. I wish you could, it's like a museum, you know, of history of controllers here. But here's the thing that you realize. That's a common denominator with all of these. I think that would be true of all of our stories. I know that it's true for my story is that when we got the Atari 2600, you know, and we're hanging out as a family, playing the game, the thing that was true for me all the time, I'm guessing it was true for you, I wanted the controller. Like, I wanted to be the one who was actually playing the game. I didn't want to just sit there and watch someone else play the game. I wanted to be playing, you know, myself, doing everything that way. And if I was having a good game, don't even think about taking this thing out of my hands. No matter how long I was going to be playing, that was the way it was going to go. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, you want the controller. And it's funny because as I brought that up, you know, I had some conversations with staff people this past week. And uh, and they were saying that some of their biggest fights that they had growing up with siblings was over who got to hold the controller, who had it in their hand. In fact, I had some parents who came and said, you know, we got our, we got our family a Nintendo Switch, you know, and, and so, and we thought that was a great idea until sharing came into the, you know, into the picture. And then we just finally caved and bought them all one, you know, and we just went that direction because it was just way easier because when, I mean, it's a real deal when we are doing something like that? We want to have the controller, and here's the thing: I think that it doesn't just come to games. I think that really that kind of paints a, a, like a picture of the story of our lives, like with the way that we live. That when we do life, we want to be the one who is holding the controller. You know, for some of you right now, you're, you're like, you're a middle school student or a high school student at any of, our, any of our sites and venues here in the room. And like, as you start to get older, you start to notice your parents start like releasing some of, like, some of the control of your life to you. And it feels so good, doesn't it? And you're like, mm, I want more of that, you know? And, and that becomes the battle between you and your parents as you're trying to figure out who really gets to call the shots, who's in control. And you always want more. And then, you know, you could be a college student who's watching right now. Do you remember back anyone to like your freshman year of college living in the dorm for the first time? I remember that stage of life and remember living in the dorm where I said goodbye to my parents. They were crying. I was okay. And, 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 and they left and all of a sudden it was like, I am in control, you know? And it was the greatest feeling ever. The reality is for our lives, when it comes to our lives, we want control, and we don't want to give it to somebody else. Well, that actually fits into the direction that we are, we're going today with this message. For those of you who haven't been around, we are in a series right now that we have been going through since September called Live This Book, where we are taking a look at the storyline of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation between September and first couple of weeks of June. And uh, man, it's been a fantastic series so far. We've broken it up into seven sections. And so far, we have looked at God's plan for humanity. He creates the world, but then the humans rebel against God's plan. And so God chooses a people, but then the people go ahead and rebel. And so now we have just started into a new section two weeks ago called Jesus the King. We made the switch from the Old Testament into the New Testament and uh, in the last two weeks, we have been moving that direction. Two weeks ago, I gave a talk on Jesus being fully God. It, to come into this world, he needed to be fully God to deal with the problem of sin that we had in the world. But then last week, Pastor Chris Dolson uh, spoke on Jesus being fully man, fully human. That, that, that it was important for him to be fully human because it shows that when it comes to the things in our life, he fully understands us. Well, today we take another jump in that series. We're actually talking about Jesus between 2 weeks ago all the way to uh, to Easter. And this week we are talking about Jesus the king. You know, it's interesting to think about the idea of Jesus as as the king because it's it's words that we use, you know, quite often. I mean, like we'll talk about Jesus the king. We'll see we'll even sing songs at any of our service about Jesus being king. But what, is it like? what does it really mean to make Jesus the king? Because like if, if you look at the world today, you know, I mean, the idea of somebody being king is like an idea that, that the world in so many ways continues to move away from. Like, like the amount of countries who had kings 200 to 100 years ago to today, I mean, the number just completely goes down. I mean, do you remember like we live in a country where we fought a war to get away from the idea of having a king, and so when we look at that concept, when we look at the idea of monarchy, when we look at that governmental structure, like, like there, countries continue to move away from it. And yet we get this picture of Jesus as the king. So why is it important to stop and look at that idea? Well, the reality is, is that scripture actually has a lot to say on the subject of Jesus being king. And it doesn't actually just all happen in the New Testament. It actually starts In the Old Testament, we need to go back there in order to get a complete picture. So if you brought your Bibles with you, however it is that you take in Scripture, go with me actually to the book of Genesis right now, to Genesis chapter 1. We're headed all the way back to the beginning. And we're going to start with Genesis 1, starting with verse 27. Now, at this point in the story, Jesus has created the world. And and he's created everything in the world. And then finally, kind of as the grand finale of his creation, he creates humans. And that's where we pick up the story in Genesis 1. We hear this, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. God creates this world, He creates humans, and his desire is to have humans be the ones who oversee this world, who rule over this world that God created. I heard a, a, a pastor, a famous pastor out of Dallas, Texas, speak on this subject one time, and, and he said it that way, this way, that God's plan was to have God's people rule God's world in God's way. God's plan is to have God's people. Rule over God's world, God's way. That was the plan of God from the beginning. But then we all know Adam and Eve fall into sin. (laughs) It fractures the world. We have all dealt with the ramifications of that ever since. And ever since that time, let's just say humans have not done a great job at being in authority, at ruling. Because at that moment, when sin entered the world, rather than being God-centered or other people-centered, focused on them and said, we became self-centered. And that became the issue that we struggle with when it comes to this idea of ruling, when it comes to the idea of being king. And so as we've gone through this series, looking at the history of the people of Israel, we have seen this like roller coaster that the people of Israel have been on as they have dealt with different kings with more downs than ups. And we see the direction that the people of Israel were headed towards their destruction as they continued to move away from God with all kinds of different kings. We see them moving towards this implosion. But during that implosion, well, there were all kinds of prophets who stepped up to the microphone and began to talk about a coming king who would come and rule one day, and he would rule. he would rule the earth with the perspective of heaven. He would be the one to come and finally rule God's world, God's way. And he would come from the line of Abraham, and he would come from the line of David. And he would sit on David's throne one day as royalty, but not just ruling over Israel, but ruling over the entire world. This is the way that God moves. So this is all taking place in the Old Testament as Israel is moving towards implosion and moving towards everything that they were headed into as they would be exiled all to around the world. And so now let's go ahead and fast forward in to the New Testament and so if, if you have your Bible, let's move now from the beginning of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament, to the book of Matthew. Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, chapter one. And this is where we pick up the story. Now, this, this is so interesting because when we, when we look at, at, at the book of Matthew, Matthew was one of the, the disciples of Jesus. He had been a tax collector, had an encounter with Jesus. His life was radically changed and he is the one who wrote this letter that we know of as as Matthew. One of the first four books of the Bible, the first four Gospels. We talked about this two weeks ago with John, that every one of the writers of these four Gospels, they're writing accounts of the lives of Jesus, but every one of them is doing it with a perspective of something that they want the listener to understand about who Jesus is. And for Matthew, his desire writing this book is that the, the, the reader, the listener, would come to a place of understanding that Jesus is this coming king that the prophets foretold. His desire was to help people to see that he was the one who would be coming into this world to be this king that we had been waiting for. And we see that straight straight out of the gate as he dives into things in chapter one, really starting with verse one, where he says this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, Now, hang on to those words, Messiah, that's important. And you're gonna see them over and over. The genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, and then between verses two and 16, Matthew goes into this this genealogy of all the different generations, all the way back from there, all the way to the time of Jesus. He begins, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, He continues, if you're interested, you can read the genealogy later. It's amazing. Good luck with that. So starting then with verse 16, he continues on, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called again, the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, for the people of Israel. And then 14 from the exile to the, here's the word again, the Messiah. Okay, now remember, Matthew has a reason for writing this letter. He's trying to create a lens to help people to see Jesus through. And he's brought up two different things. He's brought up one. He's pointing towards the idea that one, Jesus is coming from the line of Abraham that had been foretold by the prophets in the Old Testament. But not only that, but he is coming from the royal line of David as the coming king, showing that as well. And he continues to use this word, Messiah, Messiah, and, and here's the interesting thing. Sometimes I think that we as Christians, we hear certain words as Christians, and but we never really stop to think about what they mean. So we'll hear Jesus called the Messiah, but we, like I think for a lot of us, we might misuse that word to think that that means savior or something like that. Actually, it has a different meaning from that. The, the word Messiah actually comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach. And when I say that, notice I don't just say Mashiach, but Mashiach because you have to have that guttural, you know, like phlegmy thing happening at the end of the word. Try saying that with me real quick. Mashiach. Mashiach. That's good. Mashiach. Mashiach is a word that we get our word Messiah, and that word translated, defined, is actually the word meaning anointed one. It points towards an idea of lordship or kingship that was connected to Jesus. Now take that Hebrew word, Mashiach, and and translate in that to Greek and you get the word Christos, the same idea. It's the word that we in English end up translating as Christ, where all of us know that we hear Jesus called Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, Christ is actually, it's not Jesus' last name. It's not, hey, there's Jesus Christ, the son of Joseph and Mary Christ. It's the Christ family, everyone. It's not the idea. It was a term that was being used, translated from this word, Mashiach Christos, meaning the anointed one, the coming Lord, the coming King. This is the picture that we get. This is, what, this is what Matthew is painting here. And then Matthew, as he goes from chapter one into chapter two, it's interesting because he then goes from that place of the genealogy right into a story, the first story that he actually shares of the life of Jesus. And uh, it's one that actually takes us back that we hang on to at Christmas every year, chapter two. So you can go there, starting with verse one. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the East came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Anyone feel like you're just going back to Christmas right now as you're hearing that story. It's interesting because we don't know a lot about these magi. We actually don't know how many they are. These are the people we would call the wise men. You know, a lot of times in your nativity scenes, you would see them as three. We're actually never told if there's three. It could have been two. It could have been a dozen. So we get the idea of three from the gifts that they brought. But these these were Middle Eastern mystics, most likely traveling from somewhere around modern-day Persia and coming to this area where Jesus had been born, and they come to King Herod. Now, we know, if you know your Christmas story well, King Herod was not a great guy. He was the one who was holding the controller of all things back at that time, and let's just say when he hears about the idea of having to share that controller with someone, he does not get excited about that idea, and so he sends the wise men along to go and find this child, and that's where we pick up the story in verse 11. The wise men on coming to the house they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. These wise men, they follow the star, they come to the place where Jesus is and they, they bow down before him. Remember the lens that Matthew was trying to create for us. And like, you think about it, like they, they show up here. We know, I mean, most theologians, theologians believe that, that Jesus probably is somewhere between the age of six months and two years at this stage of his life. And they come and they come with these gifts. And these are not your typical like baby shower gifts or birthday gifts that you would bring. It, it doesn't say like, and they open their gifts of diapers and a pack and play and a stuffed animal. You know, it's, no, these are gifts. These are gifts of royalty that they bring and they come and they bow down before this child. Like, can you, do you get the picture of what's happening in this moment that's taking place? G, like, Matthew is trying to paint this picture, trying to help us as the audience, as the listener, to understand that this child was different. So and what was happening with this child, like, this was, this was royalty, and that Jesus was coming to sit on the throne of David because he came from that line, and he would not be one who would just roll, rule over Israel, but rule over all people. And the first people that we see in the story of Matthew that come to worship him are Eastern mystics, who by the way, are not Jewish. Matthew is painting this picture. And he continues on through his letter to write about the teachings and parables of Jesus, the followers of Jesus that begin to follow him, and the ministry that Jesus is having. And then all of a sudden, it's interesting, in chapter 16, there's a conversation that Jesus has with his followers a very distinct conversation with a question that he goes ahead and asks them in this moment that's interesting to look at when, again, we look at it through the lens of what we understand Matthew to be writing. Go to Matthew 16 for just a moment. Matthew 16, Jesus is traveling with his disciples, and he says this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, 'Who, who do people say the Son of Man is? The son of man was actually a way of Jesus referring to himself. It's, it, it was a way for him to show humility and the reality of his humanity. Um, and oftentimes in scripture, you'll see that. It's a way that he referred to himself often. Who do you say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the, here's that word again, the Messiah, the son of the living God. <laughs> Peter answers, you are the Messiah. In other words, you are the king. This was a big moment that Matthew was trying to emphasize. And you know, really, when, when, like when we stop to look at it, The question that Jesus asked Peter really is a question that I mean, since that time, for anyone who came to the place of an understanding of Jesus in any way, it's the question (laughs) that each of us are asked. The same question as Peter, who would you say that Jesus is? And I think it's worthwhile for all of us to look at because we talk about Jesus being savior quite a bit, you know, within the church world, but we don't all the time talk about the idea of him being king. So when it comes to the idea of Jesus in your own life, who, who would you say that Jesus is? It's interesting. It's a tough one for us because we have, we have skewed perspectives of the ways that we see a king in this world. For some of us, like when we think of a king, we think of like a ceremonial king, you know, like a king that's kind of like a figurehead. They, they hold a position, but they really don't have any authority. They stop and wave to people, but they're not making a lot of decisions when it comes to governmental structure you know and 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 so they're just sort of a ceremonial figurehead and that's not the idea of Jesus at all i mean when we read scripture and understand jesus came with a mission to change and transform the world so figurehead ceremonial king okay that can't be him another way that we look at kings sometimes is we think of we think of a king as like a um, kind of like the the selfish self-centered arrogant king that's all about themselves and if we get into the story of Jesus, it's really easy for us to look and go, well, that's, that's not Jesus either. Actually, it gets complicated because here's the thing. If you were to ask Jesus who would make the best king, Jesus would say, well, I would. <laughs> Which can sound arrogant, right? I mean, Jesus, you ask him the question, he would say, yes, I would make the best king. And the reason why is because I'm God. And if I'm God, I get to be the best king. And so like Jesus, it can easily seem like when he looks at himself like, man, he's arrogant or he's like stuck on himself. But think about Jesus as God has no choice but to just perpetually be stuck on himself. I mean, who else is he going to be stuck on? Me or you? You know, I mean, so when he looks at himself, he goes, no, I am the one who would make the best king. That's actually not arrogant. Arrogant is, the, the idea of arrogance is like an inflated, overinflated view of myself. Jesus actually isn't being arrogant when he says that. He's being accurate. And so the idea of Jesus being king We've got to wrap our mind around, okay, it's not this self-centered type of a person. It's not this ceremonial figurehead. No, that's not it. We have a hard time wrapping our mind around it. It makes it difficult to answer the question, who do we say Jesus is? Would we say that he's king? But there's actually something else that I think stands in the way of us really answering that question, and that is when it comes to my life, I want to be king. I want to be the one who's holding the controller of my life, making the decisions, and I don't want to give it to anyone. You know, and so we deal with this place of we've got the controller in our lives and we feel like, ah, things are going pretty well. And you know, and then we come to church. And here's the thing that I think happens at church a lot. We talk a lot about the idea of Jesus being savior. And we love the idea of Jesus being savior. He died to pay the penalty for our sins. All of that is true. And so we like the idea of Jesus becoming my savior. Therefore, he is my friend. He's my buddy. He's my pal. He's my sidekick. He's my co-pilot. And we like that idea because Jesus being in that role, I still get to be king. And so I'm the one who gets to call the shots. And the reality is what what Jesus is calling us to, what Matthew was trying to help us understand, is if Jesus is truly King, then things start to get uncomfortable for us. Because we have to make the decision on what it is that we believe. And when it comes to that place, man, that gets uncomfortable because that that starts to mess with like my plans, my hopes, my dreams, my desires you know, all of that stuff. And so we come to church and we sing about the, like we can sing songs about Jesus being king. Jesus, you are my king. And we can talk about Jesus being king, but don't you think it would be good? Like if we say it and we sing it, we should actually mean it. And so (laughs) what does it mean to make Jesus king? Well, it means being people who with the controllers of our lives that we start to go like this. Jesus, I'm giving you control. I'm giving you the opportunity to call the shots in my life. Like and so I am going to be submissive to you as I hand you the controller And I am going to be submissive to the things that you call me to. The idea of rather than being self-centered, being centered on God, centered on others, making much of others, loving others more than I love myself, that's what I am going to strive for. And I am going to strive to be obedient to the type of person that you have called me to be. I am going to submit my life to you. Does that mean that we just sit back and we do nothing? No, absolutely not. But it means that, in think about this, in every Every situation, every circumstance, every event that we are in, every conflict that we find ourselves in, every opportunity that we have, that we would be asking the question what would Jesus want me to do in this situation that I find myself in right now? This opportunity, the struggle. This conflict, yeah, what would Jesus want me to do? How would he want me to respond? How would he want me to interact? What would he have me do with this thing that is coming up that we would constantly be asking ourselves that question, that we would become people who look at it that way? You see, I think that for some of us right now, this gets uncomfortable because we could easily be people who who say, Matt, look, look, The idea of Jesus being my savior, I love that. And I love the, like, I'm gonna spend eternity in heaven and I'm so grateful. But when it comes to my life, like, I'm pretty good at this. Have you watched me play at all? Like, I can get a pretty high score. And uh, I kind of know what I'm doing and I work off of my intuition and I've got a good feel for the way this works. I've got a decent history. Look at my track record and my high scores. I feel like I'm doing pretty well. And what Jesus is saying is, no, look, I want you to hand this to me. See, here's the reality that I think for some of us we need to hear. When Jesus came to this world, he didn't just come to save us. He came to change us. He came to change and transform us into the people who we were intended to be from the beginning that we would be people who as we spend time with Jesus and submit our lives to him, that we end up looking more like him. But there's a reason for that. He didn't just come to save us and he didn't just come to change us individually. So now I'm a changed person. He he came to change the world and to invite us into that mission that he's a part of. He came to be one to say, look, I, I want to change and transform the world. And the way I am going to do that is through you. And so I as king and creating a kingdom and my desire is to have people who submit to me, submit their lives to me and become more like me, that we become a world and these people become people of of goodness and, and generosity and kindness and mercy and forgiveness and justice that the world would through these people begin little by little looking more and more the way it was intended to from the beginning. And as people see that, they would be drawn to what's going on and desire to give their lives that their lives would be transformed at all. You see, it's the question that we're asked. Who do you say that Jesus is? In other words, do you wanna be a part of changing the world? Do you want to be on mission with Jesus? Because he invites us into it where he's the king. You know, anytime that we're looking at life, if we're being challenged to hand off the controller to someone, sometimes we say it, we're gonna like hook our wagon to somebody or something like that. The question that we should be asking is, okay, who's that person that I'm hooking my wagon to? Like, what are they really like? (laughs) You look at the life of Jesus, wow. There was a pastor years ago, um, amazing pastor, a a, a guy, uh, Dr. Lockridge. Dr. Lockridge was a pastor from 1952 to 1993 at one church, senior pastor, Calvary Baptist Church, San Diego, California. Amazing man, amazing pastor, amazing preacher and amazing orator. And yet his, his most famous sermon that he ever gave was a sermon that he gave actually at an um, event in Detroit, Michigan back in 1976. And the, he, he, he preached for over an hour. So there you go. I've been going for about 30 minutes. So just double this, you know? And, uh, and the original title of the message, it was titled Amen. But since that time, it's actually been changed and given a different title called That's My King. And in that message, he talked about this concept of Jesus being king. And as he talked about that subject, he went into this three-minute monologue at the end of his message that paints the picture of the essence of who Jesus is as the king of the world. (laughs) You wanna know who you're hooking your wagon to when you talk about Jesus being king. You want to know if Jesus can be trusted Do you want to know what kind of king he is? I'm going to hand off the baton right now to Dr. Lockridge and allow him to finish this message. Listen to this.
1: and the tribe he sympathizes and he saves he strengthens and sustains he guards and he guides he heals the sick he cleanses the lepers he forgives sinners he discharges debtors he delivers the captives he defends the feeble he blesses the young he serves the unfortunate he regards the age he rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meager I wonder if you know him he's the key to knowledge he's the wellspring of wisdom he's the doorway of deliverance he's the pathway of peace He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous and his yoke He's easy and his burden is lighter. I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible.